1: Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. One of the things I really enjoy being a part of is a column that appears in the Grand Rapids Press. It's called Ethics and Religion Talk. And it's an interfaith panel where people of a variety of spiritual persuasions uh, give their take on questions that people write in about theology, about ethics, morality, uh, social conventions. It's very wide-ranging. And one of the people who is on this panel of authors with me is Father Michael Nasser. And he is a pastor at St. Nicholas Antiochian Orthodox Church. And we go to a baseball game every year. (laughs) That's our payoff. Okay, we we don't make money off of this. Uh, there's no fame, but we get a baseball game. We get to see the Whitecaps every year. And we had an interchange last time, Father Michael and I, and it occurred to me, it has been a really long time since we've had somebody from the Orthodox tradition here on Common Threads. I thought, why not? So we welcome to Common Threads, Father Michael Nasser. Hello, Father. Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Certainly. You know, you do know that the Orthodox Church, while it is growing here in the United States, for the longest time, you guys were kind of like the the ugly stepchild (laughs) that stayed home while other traditions, uh, particularly the Catholic tradition, got all the press all the notoriety and even people who were anti-Catholic, at least they knew who Catholics were. I'll bet some of the people who were anti Catholic would have been also anti Orthodox if they knew you existed. That's probably true. I mean I never heard I never heard it said that the Ku Klux Klan was anti Orthodox. <laughs> But that's only because, as I say, they just didn't know you guys were around. That's they true. would totally be <laughs> on your case.
2: The bishop that ordained me said we're the best kept secret in America.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I, can, I can totally understand that. And, and one of the things that I believe most people who know you exist mm-hmm. have some working <clears throat> knowledge of the Orthodox tradition. They know that there was a schism— in the uh, uh, around the year one thousand, mm-hmm. correct, correct, and and here's what uh, even surprised me. I assumed that everything that was Roman Catholic and everything that was Orthodox, well, well, there was no Roman Catholic and right. Orthodox, right? There was right. just the Church. Right. I thought that you would agree on everything that happened from the year one. <laughs> All the way to the year 1000. Sure. And that, that is where, that is when the theological splits started in, in all of this. But that's really not quite true, I, I come to understand. So let me ask you a couple of questions about that. So for instance, one of the big differences between you and Roman Catholics is that you do not acknowledge the Pope as being the universal head of the Church, Right. The, okay, you do acknowledge him as being the bishop of Rome. True. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say we are in the year 750, and I'm in Constantinople, mm-hmm. and and I am a member of the church. Who do I think the person sitting in the chair of Peter is in mm-hmm. Rome? How, how how would somebody back then yeah. at that place and is the, is the person um, in Constantinople in the year 750 mm-hmm. going to give me the same answer as the person in Paris hmm. in 750, mm-hmm. in terms of who is that person yeah. who is the Bishop of Rome? What does he mean to this thing we
2: call Christianity? Right. It's a great question. Uh, because if we're talking around the year 750, so the, the split hasn't happened yet, and yet uh, your, your intuition is, is right. Those, what will become a split was a growing difference for centuries. In fact, for several hundred years before, around the year 750 that we're talking about, uh, there had been differences, and those differences were growing. Um, but I think it's, a, it's, it's always important to start with the unity, to me. It's really important we need to start with what do we understand and what do we share— So with what would have been called, at that point, uh, the churches in the western part of the Roman or Byzantine Empire versus the churches in the east, there was unity. In fact, uh, I, I think we can say proudly that the churches in the western part of that area really held to what we would call Orthodox Christianity, in some ways better in those early centuries when the church in the east were wrestling with all kinds of heresies, Arianism and Nestorianism... Uh, in fact, what will become one of the chief uh, reasons for the eventual split was an effort by some very well-intentioned nuns. I think they were in France, maybe Spain, I can't remember. But they saw the, the, the heresy growing in the East, that this priest, an, uh, a Christian priest in Alexandria, his name was Arius, he was running around telling everybody that this, uh, this Jesus Christ, being a wonderful person was really not the only begotten Son of God that had been taught by the original One Holy Orthodox Catholic Church. Um, he was running around saying that he's a wonderful creation, very important, but a creation. These nuns out in the West said, you know what, we want to. We see the danger of that growing uh, misunderstanding, that growing heresy. We want to put a stop to that. They changed, again, very well-intentioned, the creed. They had been agreed at that one ecumenical council, the first ecumenical council happened in in the city of Nicaea in 325, um, and had said that um, the Father is the origin of both the Son and the Spirit, that the Spirit and the Son both come from the Father. The Son is, is ever begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is ever proceeding from the Father. Well, they said, well, if we just make a little change, it'll be very clear that this Jesus is divine, and we'll just say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And they added that little phrase, and the Son, in Latin, filioque. That will become, now hundreds of years later, the cause, or one of the causes of the eventual split. Not the cause, one of the causes. So those, those I, I guess the way to say it is to sum it up, is those divisions were growing, even then. Now, how would they see each other? They would see each other as uh, children in those dioceses, in Constantinople or in Rome, of the one Church. They would see their bishop as the leader of their church. They would see the bishops of other dioceses as brother bishops to their bishop. But I think what we could probably guess is that even then, uh, the Bishop of Rome, who had been called for centuries by that point, the first among equals. Uh, how they were seeing that first part was probably growing for a while. Eventually, first gets primary voice in the West, among equals. And in the East, we're saying first, among equals. <laughs> and that difference is going to be the, the, the main driving point that will eventually cause the split. So, if there ever was a
1: reunification between Orthodoxy and Catholicism, the understanding that the Bishop of Rome is a first among equals that that would prevail.
2: Theoretically, it would. Now, of course, we don't know what would happen, but that was the established order, and and I would assume that we would return to that. But how that would work out would remain to be seen. But that that is the established order. Sure. Yeah.
1: And the question that uh, piqued my interest in in conversation with you last year, see, again, I thought that the theology that we know is Roman Catholicism that goes all the way back, Mm -hmm. and really uh, Christianity in general, I thought that there was agreement on the key tenets. And, of course, one of the key tenets in Western Christianity— not just Catholicism, mm-hmm. is original sin. Right. And you said that you don't really use that that term in Orthodoxy.
2: hmm
1: And that surprised me because I thought original sin went, I think, as far back as Augustine. Sure. Okay. Yep. So uh, uh, you don't acknowledge original sin, which comes from St. Augustine, who is one of your saints as well. Right. Tell us about that.
2: <laughs> so we would acknowledge it as an idea, uh, but what we would acknowledge is that our conception of it is really different um, than in some ways even Augustine himself would have seen it, but really different from those who followed in that tradition that he began, but he didn't finish it. He began a tradition that was built upon and especially gets uh, strengthened in its, in its being prevalent in the Church of the West when the idea of what we call scholasticism, that becomes the main way in the West. How do you learn about God? You study Him. And so schools of theology had their place alongside other schools of history and the natural sciences. We're going to study God. While that is being strengthened in the West, what's going on in the East is an idea that, yes, there was sin committed early on from the very beginning in Adam and Eve, Um though not the very beginning of time of creation, but very early on in the creation, but it gets viewed increasingly different in the East from the West. So we may have been sort of close in the beginning, but that, that difference is going to grow over time. And that difference is really um, gets, I think, it, it, it gets accentuated in a growing divergence as scholasticism takes hold in the West as the main way we're going to understand God, Whereas the East, uh, really what was originally our idea of how do you know God is is you don't learn about him, you don't know about God, our goal is to know God. And so the mystical tradition of our spirituality, from the liturgical life to the life of prayer in silence and meditation, uh, that was was, uh, really an idea that began in the East to some degree, but definitely was strengthened in the East. And in the West, it becomes one of the threads of the tradition, and not necessarily the dominant one. And so what you end up with, uh, for example, in the the 14th, 15th century, are um, now, of course, in a divided church, um, students east and west of their traditions debating, how do we get to know God? And this gets um, written down, we have extensive writings between St. Gregory Paul Lamas in the East and a monk in the West named Barlaam, and they go back and forth on this topic.
1: You mean in terms of dialogue?
2: Yeah, they were dialogue. Okay. Exactly. And the dialogue, as a lot of dialogues do, uh, got a little bit lost in different concepts and different ways of framing, framing the dialogue.
1: Okay, so how do we get to original sin in, in defining that?
2: Yeah, so in, in the West you had, because this is the Church of the West based in Rome, Rome being a very uh, a society based on the legal system, the Roman law. In the East, you really had more of an idea of, an, of a natural, more organic way that things are viewed. Think of the philosophy that came out of the Greeks and things like that. Um, and what we end up with is, one way I kind of like to characterize it is, that in the Church of the West, the main framework for the work of salvation, which sin is one concept of, uh, really could look at as a legal uh, process. Sin is committed, it's treated as a crime, punishment is to be meted out, and there's a remedy for the punishment. In the East, you have a, a different system. You have the idea of sin not as a breaking of a commandment, which of course it was, but more seen as a symptom of a sickness. And that difference between seeing sin as breaking of a rule versus a, an illness is how we end up with a very different idea of original sin. For the West... It's where the, the beginning of a, a legal problem between humanity and God began and grew, and so it needs a legal remedy. Somebody needs to pay the price. In the East, we never had that legal idea. It was really much more of an idea of we have a sickness, and that sickness has resulted in lots of terrible things, the chief among which is death. So we need remedy for death, and that's why, in our view, Christ comes to save us from our sin, but principally from our death. And so his death is seen as conquering death. That's the main hymn we sing.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Father Michael Nasser, and we're talking about orthodoxy in the Christian Church. So you're saying that the death of Jesus did not expiate all sin, uh, past, present, in in the future, that, that that was not the great price that had to be paid. Mm-hmm. So
2: it sounds to me like he wasn't the sacrificial lamb. Would you use that metaphor? We would use it. It just wouldn't be our primary one. He, he was the, the sacrificial lamb in the sense that someone needed to die to bring new life. And what we see as we look at the Old Testament, we see all of that really as being... Uh, seen most clearly in reference to the New. So we have a lot of things in the Old Testament that, from our point of view, I'm sure others would differ in their point of view, from our point of view, you really see the full meaning of it in the fulfillment of all of that in the person and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Paschal Lamb was slaughtered. In fact, if you look at St. At John's Gospel, um Christ is, is nailed to the cross at a different time than the other three. And some will say, oh, look, uh, that must, by less be wrong. One says noon, one says nine in the morning. We see that as John is trying to, to teach an important lesson. And at the same time the Paschal lambs are being slaughtered, what's happening? Jesus is being put on the cross. So we would agree with that in terms of an image. We would just say that uh, as the, the lamb being slaughtered uh, before the exodus of uh, the Hebrew people, leaving slavery in Egypt for the promised land, in, in their promised land, that new life, we would see the same thing, only we would see that uh, the bad guy in our story is the devil who has captivated us by our own sin, and that sin is leading us to more sin and sickness and death. We need a Savior to come through and by His blood lead a way for us to new life. And for us, our spiritual life is all about how to attach ourselves to the one who brings us through death to new life. So is your understanding of the sacrament of baptism
1: different from Western Christianity as a whole, not just Catholicism?
2: Yeah, I I think so. I think we have some things that we do share in common. We do understand it as a cleansing, as as a remission of sins. But principally, it is the baptism into Christ, as St. Paul says, baptized into his death, that we would also be raised with him. So it's the beginning of an Orthodox Christian spiritual life where they are attached to Christ through his death, which is why uh, a baptism in the Orthodox Church remains. The standard form is immersion. The word baptism doesn't mean getting wet. It means immersed, because when one is immersed, uh, one sees a connection between death of being held under water, and new life coming out of that water. I always tell people when, when I perform baptism, watch the face on, on, watch the expression on mama's face. She gets it. She gets the idea, this is about death and life. And so when that child, if it's a baby baptized, going into the water and coming out, that's the beginning of a life in Christ. But all of our sacraments, all of our worship, all of our spiritual life is about maintaining that connection, or when we've lost it to a degree, reattaching ourselves again. Uh, you were asking as we were beginning uh, the show before we began about Great Lent. This is a time of repentance for Orthodox Christians, like it is in the West as well. So I'm hearing lots of confessions, and I'm seeing lots of tears. And I remind people, those tears of, uh, of, of sorrow in confession for one's sins, that's a reminder to you, like a reconnection to you of your baptismal water. That's a reconnection. You are regaining that baptismal life by your confession, by your repentance. And so, repentance through the sacrament of confession is where we reattach ourselves to that Christ we were joined in baptism. Immersing a baby, there's got to be a trick to that. (laughs) Seriously, don't keep under too long. (laughs) (laughs) But it's got to be immersion, you know. Sure, it's it's symbolic. Even symbolism in the East, you know, in the West, a symbol stands in place of something else in a lot of ways. And a lot of debates, for example, among Western Christians, even among the the traditions in the West, or what does a symbol mean? In the East, a symbol is what attaches itself to something. So sim, together, like a symphony, symphony, a, a, a symbol standing together. S- baptism is a symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ. So it stands with that death and resurrection and connects us to it. That's how we see it as symbolic. So let's say a a a Catholic and a Baptist walk
1: into a bar. No, uh, <laughs> let's say a Catholic and a Baptist come to you because they wish to convert. Mm-hmm. The The Catholic was baptized by sprinkling as an infant, and the Baptist was fully immersed at some point in his life. Right. Do Do either one of them, do both of them have to go through uh, an Orthodox baptism.
2: You know, it's funny. We've had a thousand years of of orthodoxy living separate from the rest of the Christian traditions, with no pope to uh, unify practice or or belief. Um, that being said, there's very there are very few controversies in within the Orthodox Church. Very few things we disagree on among Orthodox. That's one of them, though. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to pick that Okay, you one. picked that one. So here, here's the debate. If someone was baptized, and by baptism we would mean with water, some would say it has to be immersion, because baptism means immersion. Some would say it doesn't have to be immersion as long as it's water. In the name of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then we recognize that that baptism took place, and because we believe in one baptism, we would chrismate them, which is the the sacrament of confirmation in the faith, roughly equivalent to the Catholic uh, sacrament of confirmation, and by that chrismation uh, complete anything which is lacking from the baptism. That's one view. The other view says we're in the Orthodox Church. We can't speak for anybody else. We can't say what did or didn't happen, so we're going to baptize you. And that's e- even a... if you
1: were a Baptist who was fully immersed. Yep.
2: Some some among the Orthodox would say that.
1: I see. Speaking of Baptists, you guys never had a Reformation. How'd you pull that off?
2: (laughs) Well, I would say from our point of view, uh, and this may sound arrogant, it really isn't, we think we got it right. We think that we held on to, in fact, uh, restored what might have been lost had we uh, gone in different ways theologically and spiritually. Uh, We think that we held on. Now, it doesn't mean that we are exempt from Splits along the way, they're worth splits. Uh, there continue to be things that come up from time to time. But we see that, that we've carried that one whole tradition, uh, which is the wholeness of what Christ gave to the apostles, and in our view, we, we've kept it. And so we've kept that unity from from then.
1: There are uh, many different strains of orthodoxy, usually a, a an ethnicity attached to them, Russian Orthodox, mm-hmm. Greek Orthodox. You're Antiochian Orthodox. Right orthodox.
2: Um, are you all in communion? So yes, all the orthodox churches are in communion. Some orthodox churches uh, are not, and and it's a schism that actually goes back long before the schism with the Church of Rome. This is back um, in the 400s when we had the Fourth Ecumenical Council, and it, it ended with a division within the Christian churches. Uh, it's a funny story, if we have time, we'll get to how that uh, is hopefully being resolved. Um, but the, uh, the, I'm sorry, I got the, the, the,
1: the, the, the churches that have Orthodox in their name yeah. but are not in communion with, say, right. your church.
2: Yeah, so we are, the Orthodox churches that came out of that council together, remain together, um, same theology, same practice, different styles here and there, because there's not one overlapping power pushing the same style on everybody. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't mean that there aren't uh, difficulties that come from time to time, and those, u- those points of unity are strained, and sometimes break for a while and get reunited, but for the most part, yeah, we're all in communion. We, we think in this country they're all ethnically identified. That's only because in places where lands were not populated by immigration, as ours has been, uh, people are part of that Christian church in that area that does take on some local flair and style. And so if you go to a Greek Orthodox church in Greece, they're not seen as an ethnicity. They're just Greek. (laughs) It's like saying you go to China and you have food. You don't have Chinese food. You just have food.
1: (laughs) You know, what kills me is, have you ever been to Turkey? I have not. Okay. You go into a restaurant. You look at the menu board. You know what's up there? Turkish coffee. Yes. (laughs) I I always wondered why... Why would you call it Turkish coffee yeah. in Turkey?
2: <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, well, that's funny. Coffee is one of those things. It's it's traveled around so much. You got to say, is it is it an Americano? Yeah, you that's know? right. That's
1: right. Yeah, that's true. Because you you can you can go to a, a Starbucks or something and see yeah, coffee exactly. Americano. I was okay. in
2: Italy and they had American coffee. <laughs> <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> um, we just have a few minutes left. I understand that uh, Orthodoxy is. Now, people are taking note of Orthodoxy, and that you mm. are getting converts, which you know, a generation, two generations ago, that rarely rarely happened, right. Um, do you have an outreach program in your church where you encourage people to explore Orthodoxy?
2: Yeah, we, we do. Um, it's really inherent in Orthodoxy to share what we have. We are we had the name long before there were any divisions in the Church, we were the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic Church. That apostolic, part of that understanding is that this is the Church of the Apostles that maintains the teachings they receive from Christ himself. But also, an apostle is one who is sent. And so that's inherent in our nature. So yeah, we are developing programs. The reason we haven't been known as an evangelical or an apostolic Church in the sense of sending out and and receiving people is... We have, by and large, been a persecuted church for almost all of our history, um, and we're just waking up from from that. Even in our modern day, we're still in, in the in the aftermath of that.
1: We need to talk about that next week. That's right. uh, that's an
2: interesting subject. Uh, and
1: uh, so, Father Nasser, if uh, people are interested in learning more about about Orthodoxy, uh, website, phone numbers, any contact information.
2: Yeah, uh, really, here in the Grand Rapids area, each of our parishes has a website, and each of those parishes has information. Ours is stnicholasgr.com, and uh, we have links to not only our own uh, activities, but uh, other links to other places with lots of knowledge. Wonderful.
1: Well, as I say, we're down to the wire for this episode, but I'm going to invite you back next week, and we'll have more conversation. I look forward to it. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella. With me today has been Father Michael Nasser, from St. Nicholas Church here in Grand Rapids. And please join us again next week here
0: on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station,
1: Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Father Michael Nasser. He is the pastor at St. Nicholas Antiochian Orthodox Church here in Grand Rapids. It had been a long time since we've had anybody from the Orthodox tradition on the air here, and I had questions, and I thought... (laughs) Father Michael would have the answers. So welcome back once again, Father Michael. Thank you, Fred. Certainly. Uh, Last week, I remember there there were a couple of of things where you were about to say something interesting. Well, you said a lot of things interesting. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But you were saying a couple of things close to the end of the show that I go, oh, I can't go there because we only have five minutes left. (laughs) And one of the things that you said was um, that you have not been evangelical in the way we normally think of the word, Mm -hmm. that is to say a significant outreach practice where you are encouraging people to join the faith. That's Mm -hmm. what we normally think of as evangelical. You said that you have not, and that's always been curious to me, um, because for the longest time you've been a persecuted church. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Talk about that. So you're saying specifically the the countries where orthodoxy uh, is the majority religion, or, or at least a very significant part of that culture, that you've been under governmental pressure or uh, religious pressure? Right. Let's talk about that.
2: Yeah. Well, let me clarify a little bit. To say that we haven't been, we haven't been as much when we're persecuted, but even that I have to really kind of qualify. If we go way back to the Roman Empire, uh, and even the Roman Empire, especially before Christianity was legalized, you have uh, roughly 300 years where the Roman uh, government uh, was, in in different times, in different uh, eras, either really harsh on the Christians, killing anyone they could find, or at best, just leaving them out of normal society. Um, and it really depended on the emperor of the day, how how difficult they were going to be on the Christians. Uh, some, as I said, were trying to kill as many as they could find. Um, how, about
1: the, how about the governors? Do you have any idea? Uh, was it just as rough for a Christian, say, in Gaul as it was in Asia Minor? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, uh, because you might have different governors, even mm-hmm. though the emperor was the same?
2: Yeah, that varied somewhat, but because of how, how the Roman power structure was, uh, those governors lived in fear of, of the emperor. You, you get to uh, see a really nice look into this in the Gospels, in the conversations Jesus has with Pontius Pilate. So here's a Roman governor, and he's out in the hinterland of the Roman Empire, um, and yet there's this itinerant preacher in front of him, that's been causing all kind of troubles for the local religious authorities. And what's Pilate trying to do? He's trying to keep things calm. He don't want to look bad when the emperor asks him, how are things going over there? So he'll end up washing his hands, where we get that phrase from, of Jesus, and that's what sends Jesus to his, to his death. Um, so yeah, it, it really varied in, in, in time and in place. Uh, but even then, it wasn't as if the church wasn't growing. In fact, we could say the church really grew the most, during those times of persecution you have those 300 years of intense persecution and what ends up coming out is that the empire itself becomes christian so it was evangelical even during persecution but i think what i was talking about last week was in terms of outreach and programs um, it's always it's it's been more difficult during those times so one of our greatest outreaches historically uh happened actually just before uh, our split between the western church with the missionary activities of Cyril and Methodius, two brothers um, who to this day have benefited those areas in lots of ways, not the least of which is we have a Cyrillic alphabet that's from St. Cyril, who developed that alphabet for those peoples for the purpose of having them be able to read Holy Scriptures and perform uh, the liturgics of the Church. So uh, that's why we haven't always been known for it, but it is part of, of who we are. And now that we are relatively free with the fall of communism, that's where the majority of Orthodox Christians were living in the last century were in areas that were under under communism. Now that that threat is gone, you see really a rebirth in all of those formerly communist lands, Eastern Europe, Russia, and in those areas. One of the things that uh, I
1: see as a, a common denominator between you and specifically Roman Catholicism and some Protestant churches, but but not all. Your understanding of the Bible, uh, some people might think that the term "orthodox" would also indicate literalism. Mm. But you're not literalists, no, right? You you acknowledge a tremendous amount of allegory in in the scriptures. Sure. Do you find? It, are there any? parts of Scripture where you would disagree with, say, your Catholic brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. in terms of what is allegorical and what is is, uh, historical? Right.
2: Well, I would say that orthodoxy, within orthodoxy, there are threads of a more allegorical approach to Scripture. Uh, The theological school of Alexandria was known for that historically, a much more allegorical approach than, say... Uh, the Church that I belong to, the Church of Antioch. Um, much more literal than the allegorical approach. And yet, um, you know, to say that there's one Orthodox interpretation of any one Scripture, I, I think would be um, a little bit of, that would not be accurate. There's an Orthodox understanding of Scripture as a whole, and then we have lots of commentary on, on Scripture, mostly agreed upon by Orthodox scholars, but not everything. Um, orthodoxy has—it's an amazing paradox. There's a lot of paradoxy in orthodoxy. One of the paradoxes is, uh, is that uh, you can have things that seem to disagree, and they come together in paradox beautifully. That—that that our Lord was born of a virgin mother, just one of them. Uh, that you can have the truth of Scripture even within uh, different scholars looking at things different ways, and yet agreeing on what's the truth. If they stop debating the meaning of a term or a particular verse, say, what's the truth being said? And they both end up saying the same thing. Uh, so I think there's a holistic approach within orthodoxy that doesn't really lend itself to a particular answer of a particular meaning of every particular verse. There are those, of course, that we would not argue with. Did Christ die and resurrect? Absolutely. In some churches these days, that, that's not seen as literal. That's seen as allegorical. We, w- we would disagree with that.
1: Orthodoxy in general would absolutely say that that is historical.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Because for us, the Bible has a particular role, which is, it, it has a, a very in- interesting function. We call it the canon of Scripture. That canon is not the, you know, boom kind of canon. It's the canon. It's the ruler. It's the measuring stick by which we measure everything else. But it is not the truth. It's the measuring. It contains truth. But our truth is is in the Scriptures. We also have truth in our iconography, we have truth in our hymnography, in the writings of our, of our uh, spirituality. All of them reflect what we would call the one truth, but there isn't one source, where there are many sources. But we'd say that the Bible, the Scripture, is the, the measurement for all the others.
1: Right, I, I am aware that that is a very important part uh, of orthodoxy, that uh, again, iconography that, mm-hmm. that one can find the divine through icons right. in the same way one can find the divine
2: through reading the Bible, right? right. It, 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 it's Even in the term, iconography is the icon, image, that awful is the writing. It's the writing of an image. So we might say commonly, oh, he painted that icon. Really, formally, we would actually say they wrote the icon, because you're writing truth just as the gospel writers wrote their gospels in truth, in word. The iconographer writes it in line and color and form. And unlike other forms of Christian
1: art, iconography... How should I put this? It's a very strict form. Yes. Right? Just because you paint a picture of a woman with a veil and call it Mary, mm-hmm. that's not an icon. Right.
2: Right. Yeah, you asked last week about about things—I think you asked about the Reformation. We didn't have a Reformation. We've had a continuity for these 2,000 years because of our uh, attempted, strict adher- adherence to that one truth. And so that, that gets played out in all kinds of forms. It gets played out in iconography. An iconographer technically isn't an artist. In fact, some of our most talented iconographers were not artists at all, because what's required is not artistic expression— as much as adherence to the tradition, specifically of the iconographer in which one learned their form from. Their goal is to copy. It's not to be original, it's not to be expressive. It's to copy, to maintain that something that I write in the 21st century has the same effect on the viewers in that church as somebody in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 7th, ninth century, Uh, that they're protecting something that is valuable and needs to be continued on to the future. Another difference
1: uh, I see in this, particularly between Orthodoxy and Catholicism, as opposed to Christianity, Western Christianity mm-hmm. in general, is the role of women in the Church. I'm just curious, uh, Do you? is this a um, an issue that you have to deal with? Are women in Orthodox churches asking for more of a voice, more of an active role in Mm -hmm. one way or the other? uh, Or are things pretty copacetic? Is that something that just doesn't come up in conversation?
2: You know, it's really funny. People outside the Church would look at us and say, oh, you have a male-only hierarchy and and clergy. Uh, That looks to us like every other form of male dominance. But it's funny. There are very few voices within Orthodoxy looking for any kind of change. Now I would advocate that we need many more vocations in the church, outside of the clergy. We need our churches need to be hiring counselors and teachers and youth workers, and and uh, choir directors and social work. All kinds of things that we should be hiring. That really, there's no restriction, male or female. Um, among the clergy, we do still keep to a male clergy, and we have our theological reasons for that. But to me, one of the reasons why I see as confirming. Uh, why uh, that's so important for us is there are very few voices within the Church. A woman within the Orthodox Church who wants to serve God will find no limit to the way she can do that. Now, um, in certain ways, uh, it's a clergy reserved for the male priesthood, uh, but even it, that's that almost uh, sounds like any male could be a priest, and that's not the case. Uh, the priesthood, the, the clergy of the Church, is a certain calling for a certain very specific group of people, not for one gender over another. If you're just joining us, you're listening
1: to Common Threads here on WGVU FM. I'm Fred Stella. With me in the studio today is Father Michael Nasser. He's from Saint Nicholas uh, Orthodox Church uh, here in Grand Rapids, and we're talking about Orthodoxy of all things. <laughs> Funny. Um. When I think of the Orthodox Church, one thing I don't think of is any overt, at least this is in the United States, Mm -hmm. any overt social action. I don't see you taking to the streets, whether it is for immigration or um, reproduction issues or anything like that. Now, it's possible that Mm -hmm. individual Orthodox people are, are marching in the streets mm-hmm. you know, next to Catholics and Baptists, right? right? But, but as a church, I, I don't see you right. encouraging that. I, am, am I just not looking in the right places? No, you,
2: you're, you're right. We don't do it a whole lot. Part of that is, again, coming out of the years of persecution, we're still reorganizing. Um, there have been uh, very few institutions of the church that survived those various persecutions—that's what's—that's part of what you're seeing. But you're also seeing um, within Orthodoxy this idea of going about your work quietly. Now, it doesn't mean that we we never march. We do every year. We're out um, at the March for Life, and we've got our banners and our clergy lead that, and we do prayers. And so there there is some activism. Um, but you have this idea again of going about your work quietly. Part of that is uh, an idea of a goal of, the, of a Orthodox Christian to do everything we do humbly, not to draw attention to ourselves. Part of it, though, I'll have to say that we can't discount the effect of persecution. When, especially if you think of um, in in the areas of the Soviet Union and the other states that they dominated, uh, the fear of the knock. The idea was that knock could come, and it came at two in the morning. And when the knock came. Somebody went away, and they never came back. So the idea of keeping your head low, I'm sure that's a part of what's going on now that we just quietly go about. But again, part of it, I think, is a very legitimate idea of what we do, we do quietly. But I, I think as, as we become uh, more secure in our place, especially in this, in this country and others, um, we, we were sort of historical latecomers. Most Christian traditions arrived here um, with the pilgrims and thereafter, most of our folks didn't start coming in great numbers to so the early 20th century. So we're 100 or 20 years behind where others are at, and I think you're going to be noticing more. But that doesn't discount, the again, the quality, I think, that that we call to live. What is your
1: relationship—and here I'm—at for at least at this point, I'm talking about you, Father Michael— mm-hmm. What is your relationship or has been your relationship with Eastern Rite Catholics who share so much
2: of, of your tradition? Yeah. So me personally, I had some friends that we were in seminary together. There was the, uh, the Eastern Rite Seminary um, that was in Newton, Massachusetts, and I was at the Greek Orthodox Seminary in Brookline, just down the street. And they came up the hill for a lot of their classes, and we had very good relationship with them. Um, since that time, I haven't had a whole lot of interaction. Just the places I've been in my ministry haven't had a lot of, of, of uh, Eastern Rite Catholics around. But what we find is that we share a lot more. In some ways, what they've told me is they share more with us than they feel that they share with their Latins, uh, Latin uh, Roman, Orthodox, uh, Roman Catholics, that they share technical unity, but they feel they share, share some things with us that they don't share with them. So it's really interesting what they oh, have to Oh, yeah, say that it. makes makes perfect sense, right? Yeah.
1: Because if you if you took somebody who didn't know a whole lot about these matters mm-hmm. and just said, okay, go to this church, and he goes to your church, and then the next week he goes to a Latin Rite Catholic—I'm uh, sorry, yeah. an Eastern Rite mm-hmm. Catholic church, and then the next week he goes to a Latin Rite church, mm-hmm. he's going to think the first two churches were yep. pretty much the same thing. Yep. And this Latin Rite Church, like, what's up with this?
2: Right. <laughs> right. And I think, too, if you look historically, it explains that. What are the Eastern Rite Catholic churches? Those were Catholic churches that became Catholic churches, um, but were historically Orthodox churches. It's not by accident or by design that somebody come along and all of a sudden you got a bunch of Catholics uh, serving liturgically like Orthodox do. These were Orthodox churches, had been for centuries, and for all kind of different historical reasons, sometimes overnight became Catholic churches just by switching legions from the local bishop to the Pope of Rome. Believing the same way, they were acting the same way, serving the same way. Um, it gets a little d- difficult now in a global world. They're they're having some challenges they didn't have before. For the Latin, example, the, the Eastern Rite Eastern right Catholics. How's that? In some countries in the world, an Eastern Rite Catholic priest can be married and have children. Yes. In other countries, that's not allowed. So because of the of the globalization that's happened with communication technology, a hundred years ago, it wasn't as much of an issue. Now, with the internet and, and all the communication we have, people are asking questions. Why is it okay for them, but not for us? So it's going to be interesting to see how they resolve some of those. I, I think they do a really good job of trying to ignore
1: that <laughs> <Exactly>. question. <laughs> uh, no, that's true. It, it, do you know in the United States, are they allowed to—are Eastern Rite Catholics— I have
2: not kept up, but it has changed over time, and it, it changes even within the United States. Some diocese, I understand. I could be wrong. Okay. Where that's allowed. And then you have sometimes where an Eastern Rite priest comes to America, and he's married. So okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. really sure how, how they're handling that. <laughs> How how um, easy is it to
1: cross-pollinate, so for instance, let's say a Roman Catholic priest. That's a, I'll take two people. Three people. Okay, I got three people. They they all want to be Orthodox priests. One of them is a Latin Rite Catholic priest, the other is an Eastern Rite Catholic priest, and the third is Episcopalian. Uh I, is, is, is there a program for
2: all three scenarios? It's, it's not a different program. Uh, we have had many instances of uh, Catholic clergy becoming Orthodox. In fact, uh, my predecessor at St. Nicholas was a former, former Catholic priest, became an Orthodox Father Michael, priest. Was, was his Father Dan, was, Dan Daly. Dan, Father yes, Dan, Dan Daly, Dan. that's right. I knew him. Yeah, yes. So he's an example of of a Catholic priest that became an Orthodox Christian, Orthodox priest. But really, it's two processes. It's the process of conversion, and then at that point, they go through the same process as anyone else in terms of ordination. They, They talk to their bishop, they look at education, they look at preparation, and a determination is made at that point. I will tell you, though, that a lot of people assume that because we shared so much history with the Catholic Church, that it's... Sometimes a lot of people would think it's easier to go from Catholicism to Orthodoxy. In some cases that's true because we don't have to help someone understand a veneration of the Virgin Mary or the priesthood or liturgical worship. These are all things they're used to. But in some ways it's harder because, as we spoke last week about the differences in East and West, even though we share a lot with the Catholic Church, we differ a lot in perspective. And sometimes that similarity can make it a lot harder to make that jump, and then one makes the jump and realizes, boy, I thought this was a little more alike that I'm realizing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, generally, I think it takes a decade or two from what my experience has been to see somebody really go through, yeah, you, you can convert, you can be chrismated. Uh, when you really understand things and can think in an orthodox way, that that takes more than overnight. It's, it's more like decades than
0: Uh,
1: going back to the baseball game, I mentioned this last week that the reason you're sitting across from me right now Mm -hmm. in our studios is we had a brief conversation and I can't remember what my question to you was, but I remember your answer at least part of it. And you kind of shrugged your shoulders and says, well, you know, we're Eastern. Yeah. And well, there was a baseball game going on and you know, <laughs> didn't really have a lot of time to follow that up. But right. I got the impression what you were saying was that part of who you are has to do with your proximity to Asia. Is that what you were saying?
2: It, it, it's it's culture, that that the churches of the East are Eastern. These are, these are churches that were rooted in cultures uh, from... Uh, the area around what's now Greece and um, the eastern Mediterranean and northern Africa. Um, it, it's not by accident that the religions, not even just Christianity, but the other religions that came from those eastern lands and areas even more east, uh, we don't necessarily share a doctrine, but we do share an outlook. Uh, and I some, think that's what you were talking about, is yeah, outlook. Yeah. We, we don't look at things as black and white. We don't look to define as much. We retain this idea of mystery. Mystery is something that has been prevalent in, I think, in all the religions of the East. And this is why, you know, among Christians, we find sometimes we can agree on doctrine with Western Christians, but our outlook sometimes is very different. I think mean, we spoke last week about differences in terms of baptism and other other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that outlook uh, really affects... Um, a, a, not just the doctrine, but how we apply the doctrine, how we live the doctrine.
1: So people who might be interested in studying orthodoxy, are they apprehensive that they're going to have to learn a foreign language at the age of yeah. like 50? <laughs> yeah, when
2: they first come, I think because of, of historically that our churches in this country still are associated, in the, by the most part, uh, with an ethnic group. But once they show up, what they're finding in most cases is they're meeting a whole lot more what you might call Heinz 57 Americans uh, than they are with any one particular group. We've had just a lot of conversion. Um, I am a minority among the clergy of my archdiocese in that I was born Orthodox. I think less than a third of our clergy were born as Orthodox Christians. The rest have converted at some point along the way. Um, so, yeah, I think this idea of an ethnic identity of orthodoxy, it's going to fade. It's just a historical reality. It's nothing unusual. Uh, my first parish was in New Kensington, Pennsylvania, uh, a little uh, aluminum town, not a steel town, but aluminum town northeast of Pittsburgh. Um, there we live the ethnic church, not the orthodox church, but the Catholic church. There was the Polish Catholic church, the Italian Catholic church, oh, the sure. Ukrainian Catholic church. Yeah, We're just, like I said, a little bit farther behind historically. But But if you... If you go to an
1: Italian Catholic church or a Polish Catholic church, you don't have to learn Polish or Italian. Right. If you go to a Greek Orthodox church,
2: do you need to know Greek? More and more, no. Mm. Now, there are still areas where there's still a significant flow of immigration from the old country, no matter where the old country happens to be. In those churches, you find that that uh, another language is often spoken as a liturgical language, um, but that's becoming uh, more and more infrequent. In the Antiochian Archdiocese, I think I could probably count on one or two hands that have a majority of Arabic in the liturgy, in the liturgy, uh, in services. Um, in our church, uh, 99.5% is English. Is it? I have to throw in some things, really, just <laughs> to help out our folks that want to associate with the language of their birth. So I'll throw it a piece be to all in Greek or Arabic or Slavonic. How many languages do you speak? Uh, English, mostly. I am not always proficient in English. <laughs> um, I learned Spanish. I spent some time in Mexico, uh, living and working at an orphanage down south of the border. And that's about it. No Greek? No. Even my, I, I hope my professors aren't listening to this, <laughs> even my New Testament Greek has become very, very rusty. And not Arabic? No. I grew up in a house where, where my mother, uh, my father passed away when I was young. My mother understood it, but didn't speak it. And so I know a few words. I learned a little bit in seminary, very little. I wish I knew more. I, I could uh, communicate better with some of my parishioners that that's their first language. But I don't have a parishioner that doesn't speak English you know, proficiently. So I see. Yeah.
1: So as we did last week, uh, as we were wrapping up, I'm going to ask you if people are interested in learning more about Orthodoxy uh,
2: or want to communicate with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, you know, there's a story in the Gospels when um, Philip calls Nathaniel, speaking about Jesus, and he says, come and see. I think it's the best thing. Go to an Orthodox Church, sit in the back and watch the worship, talk to the priest, ask some questions. Of course, these days on the Internet, there are so many resources out there. Um, Ancientfaith.com is one of our publishing uh, houses. They have all kinds of books and podcasts and information. And our website here locally is stnicholasgr.com. You learn about our parish and about orthodoxy in general. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Father Michael. It's been great, thank you. You've been
1: listening to Common Threads on WGVU FM. I'm Fred Stella, my guest today, Father Michael Nasser. Please join us again next week, right here on Common Threads.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.